Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Mulatalo. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Neil Bridgman. Neil is a marketing and branding expert, recently turned naturopathic nutritionist. I have known Neil for, I don't know, 10 years or so, perhaps a little bit more. Now, we haven't been in the same country for a few years. And last year, we had a nice long phone call where Neil started to tell me about his career conversion. So we have a very wide-ranging conversation in this episode because Neil obviously is a marketing and branding specialist who held top roles at Netaporte, Mr. Porter, Outer Known, and now in HealthTech. We, of course, talk about naturopathic medicine, his own journey with immune resilience, sporting injuries, and mental health which are some of the reasons which led him to study nutritional therapy. We talk a little bit more about meditation as well as the benefits of yoga. And I must say, Neil is one of the most eloquent guests that I've had, particularly on the subject of yoga. So I am thrilled to bring you my conversation with my friend, Neil Bridgman. Happy listening. Neil, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. My pleasure, Anne. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been only a few days since I've seen you, since you joined a guided meditation. Was it last week? Yes, it was. That was so fantastic. <laughs> Good. But it's been a couple of years since I've seen you last, hasn't it? Yeah, face to face. It's been quite some time, definitely pre-COVID. Yeah, it's been years now. So um, hopefully we'll get to see each other soon. Yeah, I hope so. So I really enjoyed discovering a little bit more about your work and your career path. But to get us started, I would love to start by hearing from you where you're from sure, (laughs) and how you landed in the UK as a senior marketing advisor for Netaporte, which is probably just around when I met you. Yeah, absolutely. I got you testing my memory here. Um, Uh We're going back to 2006 when I first arrived from Australia. So I was 26 years old, straight off the plane, arrived in London and, you know, immediately looking for jobs. And to be honest, the the next Porte job was the first job offer I got. So I'd been looking for a couple of weeks and had a lot of digital marketing experience from my time in Australia. And um, when I arrived in the UK, there was not a lot of people with that experience. So um. I managed to to somehow get my foot in the in the fashion door at Netaporte way back in the early days of, of the business. And I started as a marketing assistant. So literally in a marketing team of, of two and then consecutively sort of worked my way up through the ranks, so to speak, to head up the marketing function for what better part of in total my time at Netaporte was almost eight years um, in total. So yeah, it was quite a, uh, a fast ride, let's call it. Bad, a bit of a roller coaster too. 
<laughs> I can just about imagine. Yeah. How did you how did you get into digital marketing in the first place? So I studied marketing at university. So in Australia, you very much go straight into whatever job career that you're thinking of from the, from pretty much the outset of when you start at uni. And then um, I did my master's in advertising as well. So I've done a lot of study back in the early days, and I got a got a position at uh, Interflora. So the the flower company, and I did most of their marketing alongside a couple of other colleagues, but I did most of the digital marketing, managed the website, all of the e-commerce. Back in the day when, you know, Google was selling AdWords, you know, based on impression instead of cost per click, that far back. And that's where I sort of built up this skill set around digital marketing. That's amazing because obviously it's, well, it's it's a very sought after skill, I would say nowadays. Absolutely. I think, and, and back then there were not many people doing it either. So it was great for me. I mean, it really did set up my career for sort of early success and was definitely, I had no fashion experience. So it was definitely the, the main reason that I was able to get my foot in the door at Netsporte back then. I'd love to hear, so did you want to get into fashion? Did you ever have any aspirations around I did. that? I was, I was obsessed with fashion. So the story is when I left high school, I actually wanted to be a chef. So I started an apprenticeship. I thought I was going to be, you know, the, the greatest chef of all time, so to speak, at least in Australia. And I got uh, a very quick sort of, you know, uh, awakening as to what was involved in being a chef, which was, it's not really a job, it's a lifestyle. And I very quickly changed course to then study marketing. But in between time, I had this huge passion for fashion. And, you know, in Australia, a season behind. And I used to buy all of the magazines that were like three or four months old so that they were sort of, you know, so we're constantly behind but I would buy them, I'd flick through and then, you know, I was absolutely obsessed with them and also used to spend all of my money, which I was earning on, you know, designer fashion when I could. So not that I was earning very much, but every last cent went to, to, to buying those sort of key pieces. So yeah, I had a passion for it, but I never thought I would ever get a foot in the door. And then these just sort of worlds came together as soon as I landed in London, which was amazing. So I jumped at the chance. How did you make the decision to come to London? My parents were, were they still are, British. Um, but they moved to Australia when in the 1970s, basically, when a huge proportion of people moved from Europe to, to Australia. So I had a British passport. Uh, so it was very easy for me to come and live here. I had a lot of friends at that point here too from Australia. So it just made a lot of sense. But I had no firm plan. It was literally just arrive and see what happens. And, you know, 16, 17 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, I arrive and see what happens. Sounds how it was like when I landed in London. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, came, you just sort I, of I go got there the flow, six right? years before you. <laughs> That's so interesting. I read in 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 the bio that you've got on LinkedIn that as you arrived, you worked very closely on the relaunch of of Roland Moray. Indeed. It's a brand that's very dear to my heart, a designer that I care about very much and who I worked with uh, quite a bit, first at Louboutin and then later on I consulted. Do you want to tell me a bit about what that was like for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, I mean, these were sort of like the 
the internet e-commerce real heydays, right? So there weren't a lot of people doing what we were doing at Netsporte in the first instance. And I had to sort of jog my memory a little bit here because we're talking like 2007, I think the project with, with Roland was when it happened. But Natalie Massonet, the founder of Netsporte, um, came into a meeting and said, look, we're, gonna, we're going to do this pre-order down the runway with Roland Murray. Customers will be able to order direct from the runway and pre-order what they want and then have it delivered in, you know, five or six months' time. No one had done anything like that before. So it was completely revolutionary. And quite frankly, at that point in time, it pretty much turned the whole business upside down to make that project happen, which actually, if you did something like that now, is a very clear recipe for success and really clear processes. But back then, we all just launched into making this project happen. Obviously, I came in from the marketing side. There was editorial, obviously buying teams involved. It was a huge effort and made phenomenal headlines, both for, I guess, Roland and for Netsporte and, you know, really pushed us, I think, as a business. It was very much always being at the forefront of innovation. And those types of projects were absolutely key to the success of the business, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting because I didn't remember exactly how the launch unfolded, but I do I do have a memory that this was the time where luxury fashion was in 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 the real boom. And Roland had done it dresses, which were obviously on the cover of all of the magazines. All of the celebrities had been wearing them. So yes, there was a lot in there to make this a really interesting and fascinating and successful launch. It's really strange to think back that this was the first time and it was revolutionary because obviously other people have made a whole business out of, you know, ordering from the runway. Yeah, I mean, pre-order now is pretty standard, right? But back then it was absolutely revolutionary. No one had done it. And, And these projects that we had, whether it was with Roland or Holston or... You know, with the Queen or even Karl Lagerfeld, for that matter, they were all built off of doing something that the world had never seen before, and and taking it to um, an enormous audience, which is what we had at Netsport A. And again, all around positioning us as the most innovative retailer out there, and it was a phenomenal um, experience working on all of those projects over over all of those years. Like I said. Definite roller coaster, but a lot of fun for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing. Well, interesting enough, the next question I was going to ask you was around your sabbaticals because I'm a little bit jealous. I've never, I've never taken a gap year, and I definitely did not take a sabbatical longer than four and a half weeks. So I'd love to hear from you. I, I understand you were working very intensely. Yes. How did you decide to take some time off, and and what did that do for you? Yeah, look, I think, first of all, I highly recommend if people can make it happen, both, you know, in terms of like life commitments and, and financially, taking time off to to travel or to explore sort of your, who you are is, I think, incredibly beneficial. What led to the decision? I'd been in Esporte for eight years. And to be pretty honest, I was fairly bent out as a, as a result. And that's not saying it in a, a very negative way. I, I threw my sort of like heart and soul into, into my job. And I was pretty tired after that, to be honest. So what um, I decided to do, and maybe it was a fairly dramatic response, but I, <laughs> I sold my flat. I sold everything in it. I um, took all of that money and I took a small chunk of it. And I said, I was going to take a year off. And that's exactly what I did. I literally left with a backpack 
on my back. And that was it. A few things in storage, but everything else was gone. And it was a real sort of like uh, defining moment of my life. I managed to travel, uh, gosh, all over Central America, uh, Central America, South America, Nepal, a lot of Europe during the summertime, went back to Australia. It was a phenomenal experience. And, and it really just reset me, I think, completely from being, you know, in this fast-paced job that was really sort of took a lot out of me to, you know, really calming down and, and, and investing time in me. And it was just pure freedom. There was no real plan. Uh, so I just took it day by day, week by week. You know, if I loved it, if I landed somewhere and I loved it, I would stay there for a couple of weeks or a few weeks. And, and it was just pure freedom. It was unlike anything I've experienced ever, ever before or since, to be honest. Yeah. Sounds like fun. It was I want fun. to do it now. Go do it. Go on, Anne. <laughs> well, I can't quite just now, but maybe in the future. Of course, um, yeah. So after after your time off, you, if I'm correct, you moved to LA, and you started working with um, out and um, what's that brand? Out and known. Exactly. Uh, the brand yeah. by by Kelly Slater. That sounds like a really nice change of environment. Do you want to tell it me about was. that? Yeah, look, I, I had basically, the latter part of that year off, I had spent a huge proportion of it in nature. So hiking in Patagonia and in the most sort of pristine wilds of the world. It was incredible. And and I wanted to step into a, into a job that took me out of my comfort zone, A, in terms of location, so not going back to the UK, not necessarily going to New York where I knew loads of people. And just by chance, this these guys got in touch with me and 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 were like started to tell me about um, what Kelly was doing. And those who don't know, Kelly Slater is pretty much a sort of all-time world surf champion um, and is a bit like the god in Australia and, and in other countries as well. So I knew him really well, or at least I knew of him well. And they pitched this concept to me of a sustainable menswear brand. And I loved it. It was based in LA, so it was not going back to my usual haunts. It was going to take me away out of my comfort zone. I was going from women's wear to men's wear, and not only men's wear, but sustainable men's wear. So I just jumped at the chance and I moved to LA just like that. Well, I flew from Chile to Miami for an interview, flew back and then flew back to LA and then ended up setting up a, a little life there, for, but for only a year. I, I loved the job. I loved the business. I loved Kelly, all the people who, who work in that. Um, John Moore, the creative director, is phenomenal. But I didn't, dare I say it, and certainly don't want to, you know, offend anyone, I just didn't love LA. I just couldn't find my groove, to be honest. And it was for no particular reason whatsoever. It just wasn't sort of um, gelling with me. So I decided to head back to, to London. and But I stayed there for a year and set up the business, the website, all the brand. It was phenomenal. I had such an amazing time and I learned a lot about sustainability, which was uh, a huge challenge at that point in time. It's a little bit more mainstream now, as it should be. But yeah, it was, it was a phenomenal experience. It was. But then mm. I came back to London. <laughs> from, <laughs> from the LA shores to, to London. And so when you got back to London... You stayed in menswear, if I'm correct, and you went into Mr. Porter. Yes, I went back. Love Mr. Yeah, I love Mr. too. I mean, it was, look, secretly, it was the brand I always wanted to work for when I was at Nest Porter. And most people know that. 
But the, the, the team there caught wind of the fact that I was coming back to London and Sabah, who runs the marketing um, department, she was going on parental leave. They needed someone to come in and just hit the ground running. And Jeremy Langmead, who was the editor at that time, got in touch and said, look, I've got a crazy idea, but do you want to maybe come back to Mr. Porter? And I was like, you know what? That sounds perfect. So I just jumped at it. Honestly, it was just an initial gut reaction. I was like, this is perfect. And I stayed in the business for about two and a half years. Um, so it was it was an amazing time. And I got to work with incredible people like Jeremy um, from an editorial perspective, Toby Bateman, who was managing director at that time. Um, I love them. They're the oh, best they're the people. Best. The best. And it was fun and it was definitely the heydays. I mean, Mr. Porter's had many heydays, I would say, but at that point in time, we were just churning out these phenomenal projects and exclusive projects with Gucci and Balenciaga and Prada and getting amazing results off the back of it too, which was it's hugely great. If you work in marketing, you know, not only doing the work, but getting the results is hugely gratifying. It was, yeah, it was, it was a great two and a half years. Yeah. It's interesting as a, as a consumer, or when I try to bring a slightly external perspective to the businesses, I find Mr. Porter a lot more attractive as, as, as a, as a platform to engage with. And I like, what is a beautiful business and I really enjoy it and certainly shop from it. But Mr. Porter really has evolved, I want to say, as a very, very strong brand of its own that I find oh, has absolutely. much more character and texture than any of the other e-commerces for women's wear that I see out there. 100%. And I, I've, I've talked a lot about this before, and I, this is just my opinion. I know that it's not backed by any sort of science or data or anything else, but um the Mr. Porter brand started with such a strong personality and identity. It, it really did. And, and by virtue of the fact that it, the brand name itself is a name, Mr. Porter. So the brand is, is, is deeply rooted in a, a clear personality, clear identity, and the team have stuck with that through and through. Um, since day one and and I think that's why that it has a, such a stronger brand connection and also it started from a clean slate remember yeah whereas Nest Porte it's a, a much broader audience to be honest and I also think that it, it evolved over years and years and years so it doesn't necessarily have as defined a personality or, or tone or identity as, as, as Mr. Porter, but that's not to say it doesn't have as much equity as the Mr. Porter brand. But I think, like you said, there's just a little bit more clarity with, with, with the Mr. Porter brand. And that's very much thanks to the buying team and to Jeremy and, and all of the teams who really work on, on that, for sure. Yeah, they definitely have a great sense of humour as well. Oh, absolutely. That wit, that's, <laughs> that's, that's key, absolutely. I think so too. So um, you made the choice to continue to work in marketing and digital marketing, but to develop a new career. And I remember I came across that. I think I came across the switch that you are going through on Instagram. And even though I'm very little on Instagram, I Mm. started seeing you posting a couple of stories about personal struggle with back problems, if I'm correct. It was, yeah. It happened over a, a period of time, but coming towards the end of my time at, at Mr. Porter, I 
I was really racking my brain. I was thinking like, I was trying to really sort of, I guess, visualize what my career would be when I was 50. And it was just blank. When I was, there was just nothing there. It was just almost like a bit of a black hole. And I I was racking my brain thinking, why can't I visualize this? Why is there nothing there when I think about a career in marketing or career in fashion? And it really started to challenge my thinking around what my future career was going to be. And I just sort of worked with it. I didn't let it freak me out or anything. And then I slipped a disc in my back. And I went through a pretty uh, arduous journey of, of pain and recovery and really pushed me to my limit, both, I think, mentally as well as physically. But then, because of that, I had a, lot, a light bulb moment. And it was a literal light bulb moment. I sat on the couch on New Year's Eve in pain. And I had previously worked with nutritionists in the past to work on like immune issues, energy issues, just general sort of health and had fantastic results. And I always had an interest in health and well-being as well. So when I sort of just had this light bulb moment, I was like, I want to be a nutritionist. That's what I'm going to be when I'm 50. I'm going to be, I'm going to be working with people and helping them have healthier lives. That's that's what I want to do. And I had the clearest image in my mind of me doing that, sat in my clinic with a client opposite me and working with them. And it was the first time I'd able to develop a mental image around that at all. And I literally just jumped at it. I was like, right, okay, where can I study nutrition? How do I get the qualification? <laughs> And went into full project management mode as per, you know, my normal style. And, um, and I found the right qualification. I found the right college to, to, to study at. And I started, I think it was like two months later. I wonder, how did you go about getting to that visualization? Was there any sort of reflection, um, contemplation work? You know what? Funny you mentioned that. That that evening, it was New Year's Eve, and I was in, like I said, I was in quite a lot of pain, and I was not keen on going out whatsoever, like everyone else. So I actually went to my yoga studio to do a gong bath and meditation that evening. And it's funny that you've just mentioned this. I'm only literally connecting the dots right now, to be honest. That was a a one and a half, two hour gong bath meditation, very chilled, came back home, sat on the couch, light bulb moment, just like that. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it must have opened up something. I'm a big believer in right timing. And I just think a lot of things converged. Clearly meditation had an effect that evening. Prior to that, I hadn't really been doing a lot of meditation. or breath work, to be honest, because I was, you know, when you're in that much pain, the breathing, the movement, it's it's quite limiting. So you sort of, I think you end up uh, uh, stepping back from a lot of work like that sometimes, sure. or at least I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's counterintuitive because most of the time when we're in pain, we think movement is going to make it worse. However, it's not always the case. Obviously, oh, we need to be very mindful, yeah. but I know that for me, generally, I try to get movement and get the blood flow and it, it helps a lot. The reason I was asking wasn't necessarily, I didn't expect you to <laughs> say it was because of meditation, but I do find that, and I have heard that when we ask ourselves a question, so you were already asking yourself, but what am I going to do? Mm. And what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> over and then and over if again. you, exactly. And our brains are wired to try and find solutions. And even if you're not necessarily 
you know, perceiving that there is an undergoing activity, it was percolating at the back of your mind and possibly what it needed was a little bit of extra rest or space. Wow. What a fascinating story. Yeah. And honestly, I literally just connected those dots as we're talking now, which is very interesting. Yeah. But now I really want to ask you, what was your experience of nutrition or nutritional naturopathic medicine before that? It wasn't huge, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I had a natural inclination towards, you know, health and well-being. You know, I, I sort of devoured all of the Instagram content that's out there and, you know, would listen to podcasts and, and do a lot of, I guess, self-education around what to eat, what not to eat. But to be honest, even back then, a lot of the information is confusing, it's contradictory, it's really hard to navigate. I, I had worked with two nutritionists in the past at different phases. So one, when I got back from LA to London, I worked with a nutritionist called Eve Kalanick, who's phenomenal. I had a, a bunch of immune issues. I was getting sick all of the time. I had lots of horrible symptoms that were really starting to affect me. And I worked with her systematically on over the course of about six months to first do um, a full gut, what we call gut protocol. So I had a lot of dysbiosis in my gastrointestinal system. So a lot of overgrowth of non-beneficial bacteria and yeasts and lots of stuff that I won't go into tons of detail because it's not that pleasant. It's You go through a very strict protocol over the course of um, a few months. And then I had a couple of setbacks and then had to sort of have a go again. But then that really brought my immune system back up to where it needed to be. And, and, you know, around about 70% of our immune system is within the gastrointestinal system. So um, that tends to be where a naturopath or a naturopathic nutritionist, you would tend to focus a lot of effort on to start with. So that's one area. And then prior to that, probably about five years earlier, I was just exhausted. And I went to a nutritionist and I just said, um, what's wrong with me? I've got no energy. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely shattered all of the time, which is not normal. It's not a normal way for, for anyone to feel. And we worked on boosting my energy back up. We did a bit of testing around, you know, my stress responses to things and noticed that, you know, I was in this sort of real fight or flight you know, mode most of the time, as many people tend to be these days. And we worked a lot on just, you know, really dampening that down, calming the system down, building up, I guess, looking back now, all of the micronutrients and 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 macronutrients you need to actually generate energy within the body. So that's really what my, my background was prior to deciding to, to jump into the actual world of nutrition. I love the fact that you you named it, that you project managed <laughs> and that you <laughs> yeah. found your way into the course two months later. I'd love to hear from you what you think is the most important thing you learned over the course of your training. The most important thing I learned in the course of my training, it has very, very little to do with the biochemistry underpinning, you know, what nutritional strategies you give for, for clients. It actually comes down to the, the therapeutic relationship that you have with a client. And my greatest sort of lesson was to just listen. So in many cases, I'm the last resort in many people's health journeys. So they've tried a whole bunch of other things, you know, different types of medication, different types of treatments, 
in many cases, they haven't worked and, and people are coming to, to me because I'm their sort of last port of call. Many feel like they haven't been listened to. Many feel like they haven't been heard um, or seen. And what I do is really just sit with a client. And, and look, I, you know, I operate a private clinic or practice and that affords us the benefit of, you know, an hour, hour and a half with a, with a client to go deep in, in, in their full health history and their full health journey. So that's a real luxury. But for a lot of um, clients, you know, listening to what they've got to say, it's often the first chance they've had an opportunity to really talk through everything. And you have to listen. And as a nutritionist, you're a little bit like a detective. So we're covering a vast array of questions, all parts of the body, really going way back into sort of early adulthood or childhood medical history. And you're starting to piece together the puzzle. And and that just comes from good listening. And that's the thing I learned the most in all of my time, my four years studying was listen, listen to who's in front of you and give them a chance to speak because often it's the first chance they've had ever. It sounds, wow, it sounds sad. <laughs> it sounds sad that it's, I, I hear you. That's from my perspective. And there's, there's no, there's no judgment on my side. I operate in a very different way than, than uh, you know, the traditional public healthcare system works. And all of those systems have their challenges. A, a lot of them also do phenomenal, phenomenal work and are incredibly, play an incredibly important role in, in people's lives when they need them. But it is really hard. It's, it's not so much sad. There's, there's a lot of, by the, by the middle to the end of the first consultation, there's also a lot of release and joy and and you can see people starting to, to to loosen up and get more comfortable with what they're talking about and and you end up in a pretty happy place most of the time I would say so it's but there is often like I said this this first opportunity to really go deep and unfortunately you can't do that necessarily with the GP it's just not the way that part of the healthcare system is is set up. But like I said, you're talking about private system versus public system. So they're quite different. Mm. Yeah. I find it fascinating uh, because to to explain to our listeners, I I had an interesting journey with nutrition and I had a couple of of great naturopathic doctors, one on, on holiday in Thailand and then when I was in New York. And it really set me off to consider my health and, and, and my body and and the causality effect of, of, you know, what we ingest and directs a lot of how we feel. Absolutely. But you're right. It came after years of having pain in my body, not understanding what it was and not being diagnosed for over two and a half years, not being taken seriously by my local GP when I was still in London and then struggling to find a diagnosis because the markers in my blood test weren't strong enough before, yeah. before I came back with a rheumatoid arthritis as, as a diagnosis. But thankfully, a bit like you with your, <laughs> with your discovery of, a, of your future career, when I got the diagnosis, I thought it was wrong and it was something else. And I followed a hunch. That's what led me to take out all red meat and gluten out of my, well, actually sure. first red meat. First, I came back from Greece and I was in so much pain. And most days, actually, I did not tell my brother who was with me on holiday because we had lost our mom that same year. Oh, I'm sorry. So I didn't want to make the holiday, which was great, dramatic, but there mm. were days where I was in so much pain. And so I followed that hunch after watching a TV show that I don't remember the name of. And long story short, as soon as I stopped eating meat, 80% of the pain immediately disappeared. Like, 
gone. Never came back like that. Um, that. That makes sense. You know, red meat is naturally inflammatory. It just is. And, you know, the rheumatoid arthritis is by, by its nature an inflammatory disorder. So it makes a lot of sense. You know, right. I had a similar, you know, albeit a much less painful journey back in my early days of jumping into health where, you mm. know, I had chronic sinusitis for years, decades, since I was like mm. in my teenage years. I cut dairy out and I was able to miraculously breathe very clearly within weeks of, of just making that one simple change. Now, that's different for everyone. That, that's what worked for me. It's not necessarily mm. what would work for other people. But those small changes can have dramatic, dramatic influence, positive mm. influence, I mm. would say. And that's it's just food, right? Yeah. Now, one of the things that I find problematic in, in the current system that we're in is that because food is not sufficiently, in my view, studied or prescribed as a way to treat diseases, oftentimes we don't remove the root cause of the issues that we come to GPs or yourself with, and we just treat the symptoms. And that's something that I find really problematic because meanwhile, and I know my journey is specific to me, but I know someone else who's done the same. And that was my GP in New York, uh, who also had rheumatoid arthritis and who followed the same regime. She was gluten-free, dairy-free and uh, meat-free. And, and as such, we are able to live a very healthy life pretty much without the need to resort to medication. And of course, I say this knowing that we're, I'm grateful that there is medication available to treat the symptoms when they do come up. But meanwhile, it's not prescribed. And there's millions of people around the world suffering who have no idea that some of these changes can change their lives. Absolutely. Look, the, the, the fact is most chronic disease is preventable with lifestyle modifications. And that's a fact. I think we have to look at sort of the bigger picture here. I think it's not just the responsibility of, of GPs or, or healthcare systems to prescribe, I guess, nutritional protocols to mm. be in better health. But let's take a step back as well and look at actually how we're educating our children mm. around the role of food, how to cook food, how to be confident around cooking food and have a positive relationship with food. These are a lot of the challenges that I actually face when I work with, with some of my clients is, is um, there's a potentially negative relationship with food. There could be just a supreme lack of confidence with how to actually prepare or cook food, which can't, should not be underestimated. Most people aren't confident in the kitchen and that's because we're not teaching them the skills at an early age to, to do that. It's more systemic, I think, in, in many ways from a social perspective, but um, I think the tide is turning. People are reconnecting with food. They are educating themselves more about what is healthy and what is not. And then there are people like me who can help guide people through the torrent of information that's out there, which is, is sometimes hard to navigate, which I think is the next challenge we have is, is the, the, the mass of information around health, lifestyle, well-being that is now starting to um, confuse the, the general public, which is, is something else that's becoming another problem, I would say. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm, I was wondering what your opinion was as a qualified a nutritionist on um, the benefits of fasting. I think fasting can play a really powerful role in, in people's lives. 
at the right point in time. And it depends on what type of fasting you're talking about. If, if you're talking about sort of a general uh, like juice or water fast, which is quite extreme over a large period of time, my view is, uh, first of all, it's not something I would prescribe to any of my clients because it's a quite a severe protocol in of itself. So my assumption, therefore, is, is that your body will have a fairly severe reaction which could be positive or it also could be negative as well. So it's quite risky. It works for some people, but not all. What I am a big fan of is time-restricted eating windows, which is a form of fasting. So when I say time-restricted eating windows, that's going from having your last meal of the day at six at night and then not eating um, anything until breakfast the next morning, say at I don't know, eight or nine in the morning. That's a 14 to 15 hour break that you're giving your digestive system, which is incredibly powerful. It allows it to, it allows it to clear itself out and renew. That is hugely beneficial. And then there are other things like, you know, fasting mimicking diets, which definitely have a place, but I think you need to be in relatively good health before you jump into to doing those. And then you'll see the greatest benefit because what they do is, it's sort of like a cellular spring clean in a way. That's the way I sort of describe it. It's sort of out with the old, in with the new. And, and that is a real benefit, definitely. But look, personally, I don't do very many fasts whatsoever. I am a fan of the time-restricted eating window. And like I said, my, my last meal is at 6, 6.30 and then I don't have anything till 8 or 9 o'clock the next day. Yeah, actually a friend of mine reminded me about this this particular diet and it's something that I really enjoy doing. So most days it's 14 to 16 hours between, but I tend to, I really like to be on an empty stomach in the morning. So for me, it's really eating between 11 and 12 and then eating the meal between 7 and 8 p.m. And it works really well. It does. And it's great for, you know, blood sugar regulation. It also really sort of allows us to switch between using different sources of fuel for energy. So it allows us to build up better resilience between switching between carbs, Mm -hmm. as well as fats for burning energy, which is really beneficial for everyone to do. It's kind of like fine tuning the sort of energy engine, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, very beneficial for, for a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's funny though. Um, so I'm asking the question partly because a I fast regularly. <laughs> My it really suits me. My body's like eh, no food. That's fine, and I never expected that. I I think the longest I've done is tea fasting for seven days, but obviously it was within a medical facility, so I was really well sure. looked after, and. To be fair, there were a couple of days at the beginning where I could barely move. I was so tired because what people don't know is detoxing takes a lot of work. Your body's working super hard. So don't think you should be doing anything, particularly exercise. Forcing ourselves to exercise is is a little bit silly. Like it's good to let nature do its work. Absolutely. And I would also sort of preface if you are going to go into sort of wanting to look at something like fasting, just to understand the reasons why um, you're looking for that type of a solution. And then if you can, to work with a healthcare professional like myself or someone else to guide you through that process, because it's quite a big deal for the body. To, mm. to go through, I would say, definitely. I need to tell you where actually I found this interest in fasting because it's very unusual. So my father, as I mentioned, was a doctor, a gynecologist and um, surgeon. Mm-hmm. And in his late 70s, he was living nearby in, in Geneva. And 
I think after, so he was not Catholic, but somehow he heard the Pope say something about fasting and a little bit like the trigger that you had about nutrition. He had a trigger mm-hmm, about yeah. huh, fasting. And this is a man who was very sporty, who cycled up mountains until his early 80s and only quit tennis after tearing his um, Achilles heel, very mm-hmm. painful. Oh, that's awful. At, at you know, at age seventy-five, but so he decided to start fasting, and he was measuring his vitals every day, so taking mm-hmm. his blood pressure, etc., and his pulse. And so he decided to fast every Monday mm-hmm. for six months, and recording obviously the the data on a daily basis. And it was phenomenal. Over the course of six months, he his blood pressure went normal when it, it had always been high. His um, weight dropped by 10 kilos. I want to say effortlessly because he never stopped eating. Like he was yeah. a very jolly person. He was never very big, <laughs> but always with a little bit of, a little bit of belly. Mm-hmm. And so I can't remember a, a couple of the other pieces of data, but it was very overwhelming in terms of the change. And it was great to see it observed by someone who is a scientist and he was, you know, I love that the, he the basically data. ran his own like medical study. Trial, individual <laughs> medical study. <laughs> yeah, because he had he had all of the tools and gadgets. Um, they were already available at the time. Yeah, look, it, it can be incredibly powerful for for people. And my only sort of caveat would be is is, is to, to be in relatively good health beforehand because it's it's like I said, it's quite a big deal to put your body through something like that, particularly a multi day fast. Yeah, I would agree. And I do think it's really great to be followed by a doctor or to Mm, have experience with it. Mm. Now, one of the things I was wondering, so I appreciate that what you felt like you've learned the most was this therapeutic approach and the the listening and the conversation that you have with your clients and your patients. I was wondering on, on a purely medical level, is there something that you feel was a myth that was debunked for you or something else that you learned that was a really big aha moment? Um, in relation to nutrition, I think what was my sort of aha moment? Because I've always had an interest in mental health. I've had my own challenges with anxiety. My biggest aha moment was discovering that something like depression or anxiety or potentially other um, mental health disorders are not just in your head. That, that, that there is a very complex set of biochemical reactions and pathways that are kick-started as a result of some type of stressor or event in your life. And, and as a result, you then start to feel and act a certain way. And that was a massive aha moment for me. Before that, I just thought it's just the way you think, which it kind of is. But the way you're thinking is actually driven through a set of physiological reactions. And that was the biggest game changer for me. I started to lean in enormously into how nutrition can then support mental health disorders, which is sort of my passion point. And one of the areas I'd definitely love to specialize in in the future. So that was my aha moment for sure. Are you telling me that you're going to study some more? Ah, yes, I am. I start my Master's of Science in Nutrition in January. So I'm taking my myself back to university <laughs> again for another two years part-time. So it's quite manageable, but really good to have that qualification at a master's level, postgraduate level for, for anywhere. It will effectively allow me to, to, to 
be able to practice anywhere um, in the world, which would be fantastic. Gives me a lot of freedom. Very excited for you. Now, Thank you. One, one of the things I was wondering is, what's it like to be head of marketing for a healthcare digital provider at mm-hmm. the same time as being a nutritionist? And where do you see pain points for the system in which you're working? Well, it's it, at the moment the nutrition um, clinic that I run is is a is a side gig, so to speak, you know. And I, I have a full time job working for a, a digital healthcare provider that affords me quite a few benefits because what it allows me to do is I have a, an understanding of what a therapeutic relationship can be like between a patient and a healthcare professional. I can take that into a lot of the work that, that I do day to day in my main job, per se, main in, in inverted comments. I just have greater empathy with, with both uh, how healthcare professionals, what they face on a daily basis. A bit different in terms of I'm not operating in the public healthcare system, so it's very different. I'm not trying to, to necessarily put two and two together there, but also understand things from uh, the patient side as well. And and I think that that then brings, like I said, a different level of empathy. And, and you need to have that level of empathy if you're in marketing. You need to understand who you're speaking with and who your audiences are. That then helps you do your job better. So in a way, it's actually worked out really nicely. It's sort of been these two worlds that have come together really perfectly. And I, I feel they bounce off one another really nicely. It allows me to talk to doctors with confidence in, in the business that I work in. It allows me to interact with GPs and psychologists and specialists, which is phenomenal for me. And I look up to them with such awe and an inspiration. So, And I learn a lot from them as well. It's been a fantastic way to bring these sort of two worlds together in a way. It's it's made a lot of sense from my perspective. Yeah. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> it does look good from afar, uh, I must say. It makes a lot of sense. You sort of have this, you know, path uh, I was on in terms of nutrition and this role in uh, moving out of fashion into digital healthcare. It's been uh, transformative for me, definitely, doing two, the two together at that yeah. time, for sure. That's amazing. Mm. Mm. Now, going back to anxiety, which you mentioned was something that you struggled with, do you want to tell me a little bit more about what you've discovered in in that relationship between the nutrition and and mental health disorders? Anything that you can share? Personally or or professionally in terms of... Both, if you feel like it. Okay, sure. 100%. we have to share, if you're comfortable with it, I think the more people share about their mental health journey, the better. We have to normalise. You know, many people have challenges with mental health. And and maybe I'll start with the, the personal side because that sort of then sets up the, the professional side. Yeah, I looking back, you know, I've always been an anxious person. It's through teenage years, through early adulthood, definitely had my challenges with anxiety. And It all came to a head when I was about 28, if I remember correctly. I had an acute bout of of anxiety, very severe, with very, very physical manifestations of, of that anxiety, right? So shaking, you know, shortness of breath, chest pains. I used to feel like the ground as I was walking was sort of undulating under my feet, which is based on a whole bunch of, of, of issues that, you know, get affected through acute anxiety within your sensory perception within your, your ears. So it was, it was terrifying. I didn't know what was happening. 
I didn't know what was going on. And so I went to the GP and they're like, well, you're suffering with anxiety. You're having a really acute spell of it. We want to put you on beta blockers, which essentially slow down your heart rate medically. And I tried those. It did not work for me at all. And in fact, when I came off of them, I was even worse than I had been. And I was at my wit's end and it was literally by chance I came across this article in Sunday Times. I still remember it. And it was a two-page article and it was about using yoga to support mental illness or mental health. And I read up on a person called um, Heather Mason, who runs an amazing institute here in based out of London called the Minded Institute. And back then she was doing these courses, for, which are called Yoga for the Mind, Depression and Anxiety. And, and I called her up and told her my story. And she's like, I really think I can help you. Come join one of our courses. It was super cheap. It ran over like eight weeks. And I had this initiation to yoga to breath work, to meditation, and it made a phenomenal difference. And I went and did the advanced course with her. So, yes, it was literally life-changing. And, I mean, that's when I started to integrate yoga into my life daily at that point. I'm not so sure it was daily now. It's not really. It's it's definitely a frequent practice. But, but back then it was daily. And it made a phenomenal difference. I calmed my system right down. I was able to get rid of a lot of the physical manifestations and symptoms that I was suffering with. But it took time. And that's it. It wasn't a sort of quick fix. It wasn't take a pill and feel better. It was actually get to the root cause of the problem, which is you have you have an overactivation of your um, nervous system. And you're in pure fight or flight mode constantly. And, um, and then I used yoga systematically, um, including breath work, to, to really calm the system down. And then professionally, that was sort of my first real, I guess you could call it burnout, if, if, if you, for want of a better term. And then I've had a couple of other instances in the last few years, but now I have my toolkit. I can also clock it really early and I have an amazing therapist that I work with as well. So I have cognitive behavior therapy at my fingertips and I'm very lucky to have that as well. And it's a really powerful combination. When I start feeling it bubble up, I know the changes I need to make. I know what tools to pull out of the toolkit and to get it back on track. So I've never experienced what I went through in, in um, 2008 ever again because I've been able to get ahead of the problem before it starts. So that's sort of the personal story and it's been harrowing. I, it's still a daily challenge, maybe not so much a battle anymore, but it's it's definitely made me a stronger, better person. I've learned so much from my anxiety. I don't um, resent it in any way. I embrace it. I've learned to make friends with it in a way. I know that sounds a bit strange, but why fight it? If it it's there and and I know how to keep it under control, which I think is is hugely empowering. And and ultimately, you know, now that I've I'm sort of going into the world of nutrition, I've I really see how food and lifestyle modifications play a phenomenal role in mental health challenges like depression and also like anxiety. I've been able to use a lot of what I've learned myself and now I'm also able to hopefully impart a lot of, of what I've learned with, with other people and help them with their challenges. I can't tell you how gratifying that is. I, it's, it's the bit of the job that I love, to be honest. Mm. 
I'm so um, grateful that you're open and, and able to to share this with with people. I was wondering whether you'd speak to the relationship between meditation or breathwork and and the vagus nerve, which is considered to be one of the nerves that really can get us to slow down and and to activate the parasympathetic <clears throat> nervous system to help us get out of that fight flight freeze mode. It's yeah. Look, it's it's my favorite nerve. If you could have a favorite nerve, um, and I sound like such a nerd. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say you can. Just you know, <laughs> sound like a total nerd saying that. Essentially, the vagus nerve um, controls the parasympathetic response. And when I say parasympathetic, I mean that 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 movement from you know fight or flight into a more calming um, or uh, calmer state within our nervous system and it it really controls the response of that within our lungs within our digestive system and particularly the heart and our heart rate so what things like yoga breath work and meditation do is 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 really stimulate um that nerve the elongation of exhaling can have a profound impact on on um stimulating the vagus nerve to to calm down um, your heart rate. By doing that, you then get this follow-on effect of, of sending messages back up to the brain that everything is fine and that everything is calm. And what I love about yoga in particular is the 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 postures, for want of a better term, or asanas, as 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 they're sort of I guess technically known as. Um, they put us in a more challenging position, right? They they sort of really challenge our posture, our, our nervous system, and then the breathing really then starts to counteract that. And it teaches the brain to have greater resilience um, with the stress response, which is absolutely key. That sort of really primitive part of our brain, which controls the stress response. By doing breath work, by doing yoga, and really sort of putting the work in, you teach that part of the brain to, to calm down and to not overreact and, and that split second reaction. And, and that I just think is hugely powerful. I had this really interesting experience the other day, actually, where I was walking in the dark and I was walking past someone's house uh, just near my flat here in London. And this enormous Rottweiler was in the front yard of one of the houses. I hadn't seen it. And then literally, as, just as I passed it, it started barking very loud at me. And normally that would have absolutely terrified me. I would have had that massive adrenaline rush, that huge spike in that sort of stress response. And and actually, I just sort of looked at it. I was like, oh, the dog's barking at me. And it was at that moment, I was like, wow, you've really come a long way, Neil, because five, 10 years ago, if that had happened, you would have gone into full fight or flight. You would have had adrenaline surging through your body. You would have been shaking. It would have absolutely terrified you. And and now something like that, albeit a very specific situation, didn't really sort of push me into that fight or flight mode. Maybe it should have. Who knows? Uh, maybe I've got a dampened response now, and and I, I, I it's probably not in my benefit. But it was it was really interesting to just note that and go, wow, okay, I've got a really different response to these types of things than what I used to have. Listening to you, this. So first of all, thank you so much. It's such an eloquent way to explain to the people who are listening to us what yoga actually can do and what the physical asanas actually bring apart from strengthening, balancing and, and stretching the more obvious sort of physical benefits. 
I remember, I don't do it very often, but I, I do follow an, uh, an Australian Kundalini teacher called Kia Mela. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever come across her. I haven't, no. And uh, a Kundalini is a, is a form of yoga that is meant to, to help us modify our energies in the body. And it looks very different than what you may think of, of yoga, which is oftentimes Hatha or Ashtanga. Anyways, sometimes you're, you're in a position for one, two or three minutes and you just have to effectively repeat a certain movement mm-hmm. while directing the breath in a certain way. And I have to tell you, it's so hard. Sometimes it's like you have to move your arms up and down for, I don't know, 90 seconds while breathing a certain way. Man, oh man. Look, I, I, I have the same thing with yin yoga as well. I find it so much harder than a traditional vinyasa or, or sort of half a flow. It's, for me, you know, putting yourself and standing still in a, in a particular posture for two or three minutes it's really challenging and way harder than a, a, a typical vinyasa or ashtanga, to be honest. And I, I, well, I'm going to have to try out the kundalini yoga. I haven't tried it, to be honest, Anne. Oh, I'll send you a link. She's very, oh, uh, she's very, very interesting. But what I thought was great is also, and I think this came from her, but I may have heard it from other teachers, uh, is because every pause lasts a certain amount of, of time. And she literally will say something like, keep going, you're doing so well. Perhaps that's the hardest thing you're going to be doing today. <laughs> you know, moving your arms in this way or your legs in this way, you're holding boat pose and doing breath of fire for 90 seconds. And that really does, I think, change our perspective on the rest of the things that we do and, and what we find hard. Absolutely. I think it's, it, like I said, it, it puts us in, it puts a different perspective on things. It puts us in positions we're not necessarily used to. And by doing so, it just, it, it challenges us. And then we, our challenge is to then uh, sit with it, right? And to be with it and to breathe through it. And that has a profound physiological effect on, on the, on, on the mind and also the body. Yeah. Like you said, it's, I'd love people to think less about yoga than uh, in terms of, you know, being flexible and bending yourself into these weird and wonderful shapes, which quite frankly, I can't do because I'm also a runner. So I have this weird sort of dichotomy between doing yoga and then, you know, having this you know quite challenging running regime as well, which makes me more stiff. And then the flexibility, I sort of build up a little bit with, with yoga, but it's not really about bending and making shapes at all, in fact. And you can have a profound practice just by doing the most, you know, the most simplest and basic postures or perhaps mm. just even sitting still and being in a Shavasana and at the very end when you're lying down. And, and that is the most profound moment really of the whole practice, for sure. It's an incredible tool that we have at our disposal. And, and I, I, I wish more people would give it a chance if, if, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, I like to joke that yoga had me at Shavasana. <laughs> That's the day that I, I, I realized. Agree. I remember I was in my I was in my London apartment, the first flat share I had with my friend at Ton. There was a very hospital colored green carpet. Oh, it sounds delightful. <laughs> I know. And I didn't have a yoga mat at the time. So I just put down 
a towel. Yeah. And I yep. remember just like breathing in the um yeah, the whatever was in that in that carpet. But at the end, it sort of all made sense. And I like the word integration. You know, when everything that you've done over the course of your practice suddenly just seeps in and you get the benefits by by not moving and, and staying still. Uh, I think it's it's hugely beneficial. I remember a point, a point after doing some yoga in, when I had my first sort of bout of, of really severe anxiety and, and I started getting to yoga more. And I remember saying to a friend that I felt like I had gotten my peripheral vision back, that my field of vision had opened up more because in that state of anxiety, I was so sort of, you know, focused and tunnel visioned. And as a result, you know, of, of doing yoga, doing the practice, it, it just opened everything back up again. And it was, mm. it was such a incredible moment to, to start to see the world, more mm. of the world again. That was a game changer for me. Yeah. It's funny you should say that because only a couple of days ago, um, I, I was rushing back home. I had gone grocery shopping and I had signed up to, to do a yoga class with an amazing teacher based in, in Oakland. And so her morning is my evening. Her name is Annie Carpenter. She's really a phenomenal teacher and a great meditation teacher too. And then for a second, I was like, oh, why, why am I doing this to myself? I'm doing too much. Why am I running around? But anyway, I was, I really wanted to take that class. So I got there a couple of minutes late. I landed on my mat. And then 75 minutes later, I just walked out, blissed out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's, it's a very challenging physical practice sometimes. And I'm definitely performing for the Zoom camera, <laughs> which is really embarrassing. But it was, I, it just changed Exactly what you said. It changed everything. And um, I love to explore metaphors. And, and a few years ago, I, was, I wrote a, a short blog post, having seen a, a really large bee incapable of, of getting out of my flat, even though the other half of the window was wide open. And okay. she was battling, like trying to dig herself into the glass in the corner of the frame. And I just thought that's us most of the time. We're just like, we're battling against an invisible enemy and we never stop long enough to take a step back to notice that the window is wide open and we have tons of possibilities. But in order to see that, we need to, as you were saying, shift our perspective. And, and that happens when we take care of our, our physical body in, in, in that way. I also think that access to nature can ha- open up that 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 sort of window in a way as well. Uh, you know, so many of us are disconnected from nature because we work in big cities and we're not necessarily able to get out to the parks or even out to forests or the coast. And that's been a huge part of my life as well is just accessing nature as much as possible, as frequently as possible. If it's mm. going for a big run or it might be just a walk, which I'm pretty fond of as well. It doesn't always have to be about running or going on, you know, a big hike like I, I do um, in the mountains. And that for me is just, that's like my heaven, basically, mm-hmm. I have to say. I get so much from nature um, and, and being in it. It's really humbling in some, in some cases. That's what really has opened up my window, I think, in many ways. Mm. I'm very glad that you brought this up because I know that this is one of the things that brings about a lot of changes. But I think it was Karis Marsden, the um, naturopathic nutritionist who 
my lecturer. Me too. Your lecturer who was on oh, the podcast. My, my, uh, my favorite lecturer, by the way. <laughs> I know. She's so amazing. I'm such a fan. I think it was her who brought up nature as well in, in our conversation. And it may not have been during the podcast, but over a separate conversation we had. And and one of the things I want to say to people who are listening, who aren't close to nature, or who find it hard to get out into the wilderness, is it's also really great to have plants in your home that you look after. You can yeah. get a lot of benefits just by, yeah, getting a little bit more of a sense of intimacy and closeness with, with you know, flora and fauna, to be honest. But look, I think access to nature doesn't necessarily mean you need to be in some sort of wild forest in the middle of Sweden. I mean, um, great if you can make that happen. You know, you can also just getting out and having getting fresh air in in, mm. in many cases for, for a nice walk and, you know, maybe not even having a podcast going at the same time. Dare I say it? Sorry, Anne. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's quite a controversial thing to say. Just listening to the world a little bit. I don't run with music and I don't walk with music or, or podcasts I just listen to what's going on and some of it could be you know the construction drilling that's happening down the road or it could be the sort of you know bird song in the forest either way both sounds bring you back to the present which I think is is absolutely key um, particularly if you do consciously note them and and that's that's important so I think you can Getting out and getting some fresh air is, is also contact with nature. And we've been cooped up and, and stuck in our homes so much more than um, we normally would be these last couple of years. So I'm very fond of really sort of setting aside an hour each day to at least get in some movement outdoors. And like I said, that could just be a nice stroll. And, and, and I get a huge benefit out of that as well. Mm, thanks so much. We're coming close to the end of the interview. I wanted to first ask you if there's anything else that you feel like we haven't covered and that you'd want to share with our listeners. I think we've covered pretty much everything, to be honest. I think this, is, um, this has been great. We've talked a lot. It's been a big journey. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. So as you know, obviously, the podcast touches on business and mindfulness. And I would love to hear from you what rituals around yoga or nutrition, or anything else that you do regularly really supports you and keeps you balanced? What keeps me balanced? In all honesty, I think that the, the, the thing that really does keep me balanced, and I don't get a chance to do it all of the time, is, is hiking. <clears throat> I, know, and I know that sounds quite specific, but I always take the time throughout the year where I can to, to, to really get out, like I said, into nature. And my happiest place is on the hiking trail, particularly in the middle of summer on a hot day, somewhere in probably the, the, the Alps or the Pyrenees and switching off from, from, from the world. So I hike on my own. I don't typically hike with other people. My phone doesn't work most of the time. I've got my tent, I've got food and, you know, I just, I switch off and I, I, I also just shut up. Um, you know, I'm in marketing, so my job is to really talk a lot. So it's nice to just be quiet and to not speak and to just be with nature. And that for me is, is, is a game changer really. And if people can find their version of that, I think, and invest time in it, that's, that has a massive impact in making you a better leader, managing stress, giving you perspective. Yeah, uh, you know, it has a, a huge impact for sure. Does that sort of answer your question? It really does. And it's, it's wonderful because it's, 
it's very evocative as you describe it. I, I feel like I can see you <laughs> <laughs> up on a trail in the mountains. Uh, and it brings a little bit of summer into my snowy into your winter uh, world. location. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you do on a day-to-day when you aren't able to, to reach that or to access, let's say, this, this particular what ritual? I, self, self-care is, and, and is, is important. And I... You know, obviously, I've got a, a relatively good diet, and I exercise, which is important too. And and it's different for everyone what type of exercise they want to do. But to really sort of like bring me down, like to end the day, I, I love a bath. That's I don't think great. Anything <laughs> better than sitting? It's such a so luxurious, right? To take twenty minutes, thirty minutes, to sit in a bath, and I might then listen to a podcast or just even the radio. And just soak and relax and enjoy it. And I put some essential oils in the bath and there's obviously Epsom salts as well. So you get lots of magnesium absorbed through the skin. And it's just this lovely thing to do. And because I I am pretty active as well, it's really soothing for my muscles. So it really aids recovery post-exercise. You're reminding me that I should do that tonight. Yeah, you should. Go for it. Particularly if it's all snowy and cold in Geneva today, you should do it, definitely. And you're right. You're reminding me about the huge bag of Epsom salts I have in the cupboard somewhere. I'll take them back out. Get a good couple of cups into into a full bath and, and really soak in it. So I'd love to ask you a few questions that I ask all of my guests Mm -hmm. at the end of the interview. Sure. So the first one, which, which I heard from another podcaster, which I really, really love is, tell me about an act of kindness that has touched your life. Uh, act of kindness has touched my life. I had to really think about this. I think it's, it's nothing profound or, or huge in any way, but my best friend who lives in Australia for my 40th birthday pulled together all of the photographs from our sort of teens, 20s and 30s. And took a huge amount of effort and work and had quotes from all of my friends. And she pulled it together, literally put it together by hand. And it was just the most phenomenal, phenomenally kind, amazing thing that I've ever received. It just my friendship in a book or, or and my, my life in a way. And, and she'd taken the time, like, you know, hours and hours and hours, days probably to put it together. And it just just blew my mind to be honest so that's definitely a a touch of um, kindness act of kindness that really touched me that's gorgeous thank you so much for sharing what song best represents you I was thinking about this in terms of representation I can tell you what my favorite song of all time is and I've loved this song since I was about 15 it's deeper and deeper by Madonna from her erotica album of all things amazing And everyone who knows me knows that's my favorite song ever. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, what or who did you want to be when, when you were growing up? I wanted to be, I think we touched on this earlier, I wanted to be a chef. I wanted to be Marco Pierre White. That's who I was going to be. You know, I had his cookbooks when I was sort of in my late teens and I was like, I'm going to be him. That was fun for a while until it ended and I chose a different career. And then I guess I wanted to be a fashion designer at one point, but realized I didn't have the artistic skill. So I went into the marketing side instead. (laughs) (laughs) That seems like a very um, smart pivot. Very sensible. Yeah, thanks. I now want to add a question. I wonder, is there a cookbook uh, in your future, possibly? Potentially. I definitely, I love, content plays a really important part of, 
my career in general, I've come from a world where content was was at the absolute center and heart of the business. It's part of my toolkit that I have for clients. I need to be able to inspire them with recipes and mm-hmm. with handouts and with information to educate them. So I really enjoy the process. I love writing. I'm not necessarily any good at it, but I like the process. And yeah, I potentially might have some sort of something in written form at, in the future, perhaps. I would love to look at some some products as well and potentially experiences in the future as well. Yay, that sounds great. Mm, definitely. Now, what would you say to your younger self if you could send yourself a message? Okay, this is what I would say. I would say study science in, at high school, number one. I It has been such an uphill battle for me to go into science and learn biochemistry, biomedicine. It's been hugely challenging at the age of 38, 40 of the last four years to do that. So I'd say study science, Neil, and don't necessarily study, God, what was I studying? Information technology. And then travel more or travel as much as possible. And I kind of do a lot of that now, but I would love to have done more in my younger, younger years, like in my early 20s, definitely. Mm. Yeah, I hear you on both counts. Thanks. What's the best advice you've ever been given? Two pieces here. They're just statements really, but they've stuck with me for a really long time, particularly someone with anxiety. Just worry about it when it happens. (laughs) Don't (laughs) stop worrying about whether it will happen or if it will happen. Just worry about it and deal with it when it does happen because you're quite good at managing your crisis. And then the other one is just being comfortable saying no. I'm a pleaser. I have been my whole life. And I sort of referenced my, my most common word is probably saying yes. Mm. I think uh, I think learning to say no, it's not necessarily advice I've, I've always taken, but um, it's something that's definitely stuck with me and, and I need to continually work on. Mm. What book is next to your bed or on your desk? Mm, okay. <clears throat> on my desk is my... Bible, as far as nutrition is concerned, which is a textbook of natural medicine by a man called, or two men called Kitsono and Murray. So that is my Bible. That's on my desk. Next to my bed, um, which is a Kindle, would be uh, Eckhart Tolle's book, which is The Power of Now. So I can continually pick that up, open it, or, you know, be at any point and read something that would have a, a fairly major impact on me. So um, I love that book. It's not an easy read, but if you break it down into small chunks, it's um, it's a great one to have by your bed. Yeah, I've got his other book actually awaiting me. I'm oh, I haven't I'll, read that. Yeah, I must the, read it. Yeah, A New Earth, I think it's called. Perhaps during the holidays. <laughs> now, who is one person that you think we should all know about? It could be a politician, a writer, a musician, an artist an activist? I think we should all know about Dr. Mark Hyman. And Dr. Mark is the, he's the global voice behind functional integrated medicine and um, nutrition. He's written a ton of books. He is the godfather of like everything that I've just discussed around nutrition and preventative medicine and, you know, how you can avoid chronic disease. Get to know him. You know, he's got an amazing podcast called The Doctor's Pharmacy, which is F-A-R 
M-A-C-Y instead of your traditional spelling of pharmacy. And he's just a fantastic advocate for, you know, clean eating, you know, policy change around food regulations, all sorts of stuff. And he's uh, an amazing man, a real inspiration. So he's, he's the person I think everyone should know about. Thanks so much. I, I so know his name and I am looking at his books right now online and I don't think I've seen any of them, but somebody else told me about him. He's written a really great book called What the Heck Should I Eat? And just dispels a lot of the myths, just gets straight to the point. Brilliant guy. Mm, Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to uh, digging into the podcast for sure. Amazing. Perhaps one of the books. And my last question, which I love to ask all of my guests, is what brings you happiness? I'll go back to what I spoke about before. I I love being in the mountains. I just like, it's pure bliss for me. I I get a huge amount of energy from being in the mountains, whether it's hiking or skiing, I don't mind. It's just, it's my happy place for sure. So there's definitely a life in the future that's not in a, you know, a warehouse apartment in (laughs) Hackney in London and some sort of, I don't know, cabin in, in the in in the mountains let's see but yeah that's that's 100 where i get happiness from for sure that's awesome thank you so much for sharing my pleasure Anne. thank you for the time it was such a joy to talk to you about um your expertise and experience in, in digital marketing nap at mr porter and and of course to discover more about what you're doing now with uh, with nutrition thank can you I so much ask you where can people find you yeah they can go to my website, which is neilbridgman.com, nice and simple. All the information about um, me and the way I run my, my clinic and consultations is, is up there and lots of um, information about you know, recipes and, and, and various guides around things like depression and PCOS and, and various other conditions. And you can find me on Instagram as well. It's just neilbridgman and that's it, nice and simple, just my name. Yay. Amazing. Uh, Well, thank you so much. I hope that you're going to have an amazing rest of the day into your weekend. Um, I'm glad that Zoom let us continue to chat because for a while it was a little bit touch and go. Um, But I'm (laughs) super, super happy. And hopefully we'll talk again very soon. Awesome. I can't wait to see you soon, Anne. Come to London soon, okay? Yeah, and you come to Switzerland. I have plenty of mountains here. Yes, exactly. Very good point. All right. Thanks again to Neil for being my guest on the show today. So you can find him at neilbridgman.com or on Instagram at neilbridgman. Easy. (laughs) You can also find details about all of the subjects we've talked about in our show notes. So friends and listeners, thank you again for joining me today. And if you want to hear more, you can go to your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button and perhaps even leave us a review. It's always lovely to hear from you. If you'd like to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter, on LinkedIn, Anne Mulitaler, or on Instagram at underscore out of the clouds, where I also share some guided meditations and daily musings about mindfulness, etc., etc. <laughs> You can find me and all of the podcast episodes on the website, which is finally live, anvmulitalo.com. If you don't know how to spell that, it's also available at outoftheclouds.com. Feel free to sign up to receive email updates, whether you're interested in podcasting or mindfulness. 
So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you will join me again next time. Until then, be well, be safe, and take care.